helping you live well, stay well, while keeping pace with today's rapidly changing healthcare environment. That's Summit Medical Group. And now it's time for SMG Radio. Here's Melanie Cole. Atrial fibrillation is the most frequently diagnosed cardiac rhythm disorder affecting up to two and a half million people in the United States. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Steinberg. He's a cardiologist and electrophysiologist with Summit Medical Group. Welcome to the show, Dr. Steinberg. Tell the listeners, what is atrial fibrillation? Atrial fibrillation, or also commonly known as AFib, is an irregular rapid heartbeat that originates in the upper or atrial chambers of the heart so that the upper chambers are actually quivering at around 500 times a minute. That's the basic electrical mechanism of AFib. So the heart really is an electrical conductor as an organ, isn't it? Would you feel this quivering? Would you feel something? What are some symptoms? So those many, many impulses in the upper part of the heart are channeled down or transmitted to the lower part of the heart, which are the pumping chambers. And most patients can feel the activity of their pumping chambers when they deviate from normal rhythm. Some of the symptoms that people experience are a rapid, irregular heartbeat, or the consequences of the loss of coordination and efficiency of the heart. Those many electrical impulses that are channeled to the pumping chambers partially get filtered out by natural mechanisms. So the bottom part of the heart is not beating at 500 times a minute, but maybe beating at anywhere between 100 and 180 beats per minute, for example. And that rapid irregular rhythm can be sensed. But because the heart's output diminishes during AFib, there is often a sense of tiredness, fatigue, weakness, shortness of breath, and a variety of other similar symptoms. But some of the symptoms are not so obviously those of a rhythm disorder, so it can be very difficult to recognize and can overlap with other many common cardiac and non-cardiac conditions. Are there some complications if it's not diagnosed? Yes, um, there can be. And, And one other point to mention about symptoms is that roughly around a quarter of patients with atrial fibrillation actually have no symptoms whatsoever. And that makes it very difficult to come up with a diagnosis and is one of the important reasons that all patients should be seen regularly by their physicians so they can be examined and if appropriate, have an EKG done. Now, in some patients with AFib, there are important conditions that can result directly from the AFib. The most concerning and the most serious would be the risk of stroke. Not every patient with AFib has a risk of stroke. Younger, healthier patients who have no cardiovascular conditions other than an electrical abnormality like AFib actually don't have an elevated risk of stroke. But older patients, patients with heart disease, prior heart attack, heart failure, valvular conditions, or high blood pressure, diabetes, and particularly if they've had a prior stroke, can have an increased risk of stroke and sometimes a very dramatically increased risk of stroke. 
and that is the most serious complication that can result from AFib. There's also a risk of heart failure and possibly an increased risk of death over time as well. So then if you do diagnose somebody, how do you diagnose them with AFib if it doesn't happen all the time? How can you kind of catch it when it's happening? So AFib comes in two flavors. Most people start out by having intermittent AFib. Medically, we call it paroxysmal AFib. In general, the AFib gets to be more common, more frequent, more prolonged over time. And in a substantial minority of patients, converts into a constant form of AFib called persistent AFib. If it's not present all the time, as you imply, it can be difficult to diagnose. Then we use EKG recording systems. If you come into the office when you're having symptoms or to the emergency room, an EKG will readily diagnose AFib. There are also monitors that you can wear or have implanted, and even nowadays, smartphone ECG systems that can be used to record EKGs at any time, and that means we can record intermittent arrhythmias much more readily than we could otherwise. What's the first line of defense then? Do you look towards medicational interventions or do you look to some others? When does it require intervention? So let's start with your first line of defense. The first thing that is done is one makes an assessment of the risk of stroke. There are scoring systems that allow us to estimate a patient's long-term risk of stroke. And when that risk is elevated, we generally will prescribe a form of blood thinner or anticoagulant. There are a variety of newer anticoagulants that have hit the market over the last few years. And there's the old mainstay that's been around for more than 50 years, Coumadin or Warfarin. Um, All of these anticoagulants can substantially reduce the risk of stroke. And that would be the first line of defense against the most serious complication of AFib. The second item that comes up for discussion is how often is the AFib happening? How debilitating are the symptoms? How disruptive are they? Are there any clinical complications, including deterioration of heart function that results from the AFib? If there are major clinical or symptomatic problems from AFib, there are medications that can help. They come in two different classes. The first class we call rate control, and those are medicines that are used to just slow the heart rate during AFib. Doesn't prevent the AFib from coming back or convert it back into a normal rhythm, but if your heartbeat is slower when you're in AFib, it usually is not as symptomatic. Second class of medicines are called antiarrhythmic medicines. They're designed to suppress the fibrillation and prevent it from returning. There are a variety of medications available, but unfortunately there are no superstars around or on the horizon, and in some patients who don't respond to initial medication treatment, there are interventional procedures called catheter ablation. So let's speak about catheter ablation for a minute. This is is a minimally invasive procedure or non-surgical procedure, correct? What happens there? Yes, very much so. This is a non-surgical procedure performed intravenously, 
which means we place catheters or small tubes through the veins, usually through the veins in the groin, and that those veins give us access to the right side of the heart. From the right upper chamber, we cross a membrane into the left upper chamber. The left upper chamber has the origin or trigger site of most episodes of atrial fibrillation. There are veins that enter the left upper chamber from, that are carrying oxygen-rich blood back from the lungs. These veins are called pulmonary veins. Most people have four different veins. And in and around the opening of the veins are little stringy muscle fibers that under normal circumstances are not electrically active or independent and have no known normal function. But when people are vulnerable to AFib, these muscle fibers become electrically active and are by far the most common trigger or initiating site of atrial fibrillation. And when we do a catheter ablation procedure, we cauterize or freeze the opening of the veins to prevent the electrical activity from emerging from these veins and setting off fibrillation in the rest of the heart. So the main purpose of a standard ablation procedure is to electrically isolate all of the pulmonary veins. Would you ever have to do ablation a second time? Does it work for the long haul, or do you have to do it again? And then when does it go to a pacemaker or some sort of surgical procedure? In the majority of patients, there is a very nice and often complete response to the ablation procedure the first time around, particularly if the AFib has been intermittent. Some patients require a second procedure, generally to touch up the first procedure. When there is a sustained response over months and years, there can be a return of atrial fibrillation even many, many years after the successful procedure. And in these instances, we can do repeat ablation as well. Other types of interventions, more extensive ablation, surgical ablation, are reserved for very special circumstances when patients have very severe AFib and its consequences. A pacemaker is generally not used unless the patient has a very slow heart rhythm independent of the AFib, but sometimes as a result of medical treatment. Um, But in and of itself, a pacemaker is not specific treatment for AFib. So if you would wrap it up for us in the last few minutes here, Dr. Steinberg, and such great information about AFib, if there's a way to prevent it, what you really want the listeners to know about heart health and why they should come to Summit Medical Group for their care. So the most important thing is to have regular medical care so your doctor can be vigilant for the development of AFib or its symptoms. And very importantly, to treat the cardiovascular conditions that make you at greater risk of having AFib. Most importantly, that would be high blood pressure, but also obesity, diabetes, and other forms of heart disease. Once the AFib has occurred, your physician at, at Summit Medical will work with cardiology and electrophysiology to determine what is the best therapeutic approach for you. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Steinberg, for being with us today. You're listening to SMG Radio, and for more information, you can go to summitmedicalgroup.com. That's summitmedicalgroup.com. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening.